a word from our sponsor, Grant Writing and Funding. Did you know that as a podcast listener of the Grant Writing and Funding podcast show, that you get 10% automatically off of all of Holly's courses? That's right, you heard it here first. So if you are looking to increase your grant writing skills or maybe even earn a certificate in grant writing, or maybe you're looking to increase your nonprofit strategic planning skills and get that mission and vision statement done, map out your year, and more. Or you might be interested in becoming a freelance grant writer and getting your business set up. Whatever your needs may be in the grant writing and funding field, you can definitely get skills at grantwritingandfunding.com to grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance mission. Just jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com and click on courses. Any course or courses you may be interested in, upon checkout, just put in the coupon code PODCAST. That automatically gets you, as a podcast listener, 10% off of all of Holly's courses. Once again, go over to grantwritingandfunding.com, click on courses, and then upon checkout, just put in your coupon code PODCAST. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, PODCAST. And while you're there, check out all the other free resources that we have at grantwritingandfunding.com. Thank you for being a valued listener of the Grant Writing and Funding podcast and being a change maker. Enjoy. Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding, and welcome to the podcast. I'm here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance mission. Now that might be the mission of the nonprofit you currently work at, or if you're a freelancer, the many missions of the nonprofits you want to work with. All right, guys, so as we're getting into today's episode, really exciting. Uh, Brady Josephson, he was actually on the podcast a long time ago, a little over a year and a half. Um, and you can definitely find the links in the show notes today at grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166. Anyways, he is from Next After Institute, and he is amazing. You guys are going to love, love, love this podcast because the Next After Institute is so interesting. He's going to share a lot of data with you guys today that you can actually apply to your nonprofit or the nonprofits you work with. Now, one of the tools he's giving away today is called a website friction sheet. And what does that really mean? Well, it basically means how you can rate your nonprofit as far as what kind of friction is is um, apparent to donors who go to your website. So he's gonna give you the steps on how to act like a donor when you visit your website and to actually click through everything and see, he's gonna give you a rating then of how much friction it is which basically means how many sticky points are there between the donor actually donating, right? So what's gonna maybe turn some people off or there might be an error link to your donation site. Oh my goodness, and people might not even be able to give when they want to. Believe you me, I've seen that happen so many times. It's because we're not donors of our own nonprofit in that same way, so we're not clicking those buttons. We don't understand the friction behind it. Um, One tip he gives today, just a sneak peek um, before we get started, is that a lot of friction lies in when you ask for too much information up front before you ask for the actual giving information, right? So the money transaction kind of stuff. So before you might be asking them, you know, how many people are in your organization or whatever, you're going through all of these questions and really you just wanna ask the name and the email and then the credit card information, right? Um, So that's it in the beginning. If you wanna follow up and ask more survey questions, do that afterwards. So I'm giving you a tip before we even get started today, but that's just one of the very many golden nuggets that Brady is gonna drop in today's episode. So do stay tuned and listen to this episode, or you can watch it on our YouTube channel at Grant Writing and Funding. And as a special treat today, Brady is also giving out a free course to Next After Institute. So jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166 to get your coupon code to get a free course at Next After Institute. 
Thanks, Brady. All right, guys, so before we get started, just a reminder, another fun thing that we've started doing for a grant writing and funding podcast show is if you leave a review, right, of our podcast in iTunes, you will get entered to win a book. Every single month, we're giving away a free book of The Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing. That is a number one best-selling book on Amazon and it's written by yours truly. <laughs> so I have both the paperback version. So if you want a paperback version or if you would prefer to have an ebook. So all you have to do is jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash podcast dash review. And you can go ahead and leave your review, take a snapshot of your review and then email it to me and you will automatically be entered in to win a book this month and any any month. So if you're listening to this in June or in May or in September, um, then go ahead and do that as we do have this as an ongoing raffle. So that is a fun thing that we have put together for the grant writing and funding show. So just who is Brady Josephson? Well, Brady is a managing director of the Next After Institute, where he performs original research, develops evidence-based resources, and provides data-driven training to help organizations raise more money online to fund their life-changing work. A charity nerd, adjunct professor, and international speaker, his thoughts have been featured in the Huffington Post, NPR, and the Chronicle of Philanthropy, among others, including the Grant Writing and Funding Show. He was a lead researcher and author of the Canadian Online Fundraising Scoreboard, the State of Nonprofit Donation Pages, and the State of Nonprofit Email Cultivation. Brady is also the host of the Generosity Freak Show, a podcast discussing how we can improve, optimize, and grow giving. He lives just outside of Dallas, Texas, as you're going to hear in our interview, as we actually recorded this right after the big snow freeze, 100 year snowstorm in Texas. So really interesting him being from Canada, yet it being still a little bit different down in Texas after that. So for all the show notes today, once again, jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166 to get all of the links and all of the tools and that friction donor page that I was talking about. So once again, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166. All right, here's Brady. Hi, Ollie. Hey, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. Sipping on some tea and uh, yeah, doing all right. Awesome. And it's great to have you actually back on the show. Now, for those of you who follow along with the Grant Writing and Funding podcast, we had Brady on episode 120. So it was quite a while ago. This is episode 166 today. So um, that was really great. And you talked a lot about online fundraising. And we are going to continue that conversation today. So I'm super excited. All of you guys out there listening that always ask me about fundraising um, and how to do it online, you're going to get a lot of your questions answered today. So thank you so much for coming back. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me and let me talk about something that uh, we spend all day every day thinking and researching about. Yes, now you guys, the Next Chapter Institute, you guys do do a lot of research. And one of the things you guys were actually working on when we talked last time was you were going to start doing some studies. You were looking at online giving in the year 2020. So obviously 2020 has been a very interesting year to say the very least. Um, and now yeah. that you've, now we're into 2021. So you actually have that research that you are ready to now share uh, with us, as well as some other things that you're working on in the space of online fundraising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we do is obviously we, we track a bunch of different benchmarks. One one is our own, where we have a number of organizations that share their data with us to just see what what's going on out in the world. And then we kind of compare and contrast to other benchmarks as well to just see, is online giving growing? Is giving overall growing? Uh, how's donor retention? What What's driving growth or non-growth? You know, trends on mobile devices and email revenue uh, to try to get a sense uh, of like what's working and how things are going, but then also for organizations really to kind of benchmark their own performance to say, you know, did we have a good year or a bad year relative to peers? And that's really the, the main value of benchmarks is to kind of give yourselves a barometer to kind of compare against. So that, you know, a lot of benchmarks just kind of got published in the last kind of two, three weeks even here as, as we're talking. And um, so it's interesting to kind of comb through and kind of figure out what kind of year did, did we actually have in the charitable giving world in, in the United States at least. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to dive into this because it is a lot of people ask me and they, they, you know, they always ask me too about the grants and I say, you know, grants, you know, sure there were fewer given out in 2020. So when we look back, but at much higher amounts overall, and as we're, you know, moving into a new administration, moving into a new year, we are going to see even more grants come out. And, you know, so we kind of look at that. That's a little different because that's kind of coming from higher up. Whereas online giving might be coming more from a grassroots bottom-up approach, right? Or even from a corporate standpoint. So how are businesses yeah. recovering? How are they going to be dedicated to nonprofits? How are individuals maybe bouncing back? You know, um, are they still giving char to charitable causes during this time? So are we going to tap into some of those things? <laughs> so really let's do it. Let's, let's do it. We definitely will. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, just overall, then, do you want to just go ahead and share kind of in general, then, you know, what maybe some of those answers are to those questions? Yeah, for sure. So one of the, the big things is like, well, did giving grow? And, and the answer from the two benchmarks that I'll be referencing most, one is the Fundraising Effectiveness Project mm -hmm. uh, in association with the Association of Fundraising Professionals. And the other one comes from the Blackboard Institute, their charitable giving report. The third one will be our uh, own benchmark at the Next After Institute. But um, according to both of the fundraising effectiveness projects and Blackbaud's charitable giving report, the answer is yes, giving did grow. Yay. You know, Blackbaud had it up 2% and the uh, fundraising effectiveness project had it up almost 11%, 10.6%. And so for people that maybe aren't in the, the fundraising space or world, especially if you're not maybe in the direct response world that kind of we're in where, you know, lower level donors who give kind of smaller amounts more frequently, this is actually kind of shocking for a lot of people, right? Because economic downturn and people losing jobs and all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. um, that often we actually see almost an inverse relationship sometimes when the needs are high, right? So when a disaster strikes, Katrina or tornadoes or hurricanes giving spikes, because we as humans see every single day on the news or around us need, and we are hardwired to respond to need, right? We're, we're empathetic beings. And so that's one of the kind of theories around this year is like, it's pretty hard to not encounter need in a year like this, where friends and neighbors are sick or dying or losing jobs. And people respond typically in droves when they interact with that. And so to see giving kind of up for those of us who kind of study direct response, it's not that, you know, unique. It's not that kind of uh, crazy. We kind of see this. Um, but it is still good to see the fact that, you know, giving overall was, was up 2% or 10.6% in the U.S. Now in Blackbots, they track Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and all of those countries and regions were actually down a little bit. Yeah. So it, it's kind of interesting to see was this kind of a U.S. focused thing that has a very strong, it's the number one rated country in the world for charitable giving. So is it kind of a U.S. focused thing or, you know, is there um, just not enough data in some of the other countries to actually know whether they, they grew or not? But that's mm -hmm. the first answer is in the U.S. at least. Yeah. Giving giving grew. That's really interesting. And it's interesting. I mean, and like you explained it, though, it does make sense. So, you know, we always see when they're like you said, when these huge disasters strike people just it's a part of our nature, like you said, which is actually, it's very helpful. When you look at like giving by zip codes, actually, it, you would think that like the more wealthy zip codes give more and they, they actually don't, they give less as a percentage of their income. It's the, the people that come from actually like lower income zip codes actually give disproportionately more. And it's the same type of concept. You know, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood and you kind of have a nice white collar job and you go to your gated community or whatever, um, you, just, you don't experience need in the same way that someone who maybe like walks to work on the streets maybe would see on their way to work. You know, it's just, you don't have those daily reminders of needs around you and you may be disconnected from the community and those types of things. So again, it's the same type of principle as all humans, we need a reason to give. And when we can see it, feel it, experience it firsthand, we're much more likely to give. That's why stories are so powerful. Visuals can be so powerful because when you see it and it makes you feel something, then your response is, I want to help. So if you don't see it, if you don't interact with it, if you don't feel it, then you're less likely to give. Um, so, so that was like a really interesting trend. And then on the digital side, huge growth, the biggest year of online giving we've ever seen, which makes a lot of sense. You know, physical events were shut down face-to-face, -face, people were in their homes on stuck on computers and, you know, with nothing else to do and things like that. But it was still good to see. So in our benchmark, online giving was up 30%. And we actually found a little um, snag in reporting that that was underreported, maybe up to 20%. So it's at least 
30% growth in, in our benchmark. And BlackBaud's online giving was up 21%. Mm-hmm. And online accounted for 13% of all charitable giving, which is the highest it has ever been since they started tracking that. So in terms of this kind of growth trajectory for online giving, mm-hmm. 2020 was the greatest year of online giving in the history of the world, mm-hmm. um, which is both like a cool statement, but also, well, yeah, every year basically is the greatest online giving in the history of the world. But this year was a little accelerated because of some of those those factors in terms of uh, organizations being forced to fundraise online who maybe have resisted it and donors that for a lot of them being the only way that they could actually, you know, give was online. They couldn't do some of the, the events and things like that. So on the digital side, it, it's so weird because it's such a crappy year in so many ways. But if you just look at online giving, you're like, yeah, it was a great year, which feels kind of, you know, weird to say. No, I think that's really interesting. And, and to also, and that's what I was going to ask, what about online? And of course, you know, it makes sense that it went up so much. I know a lot of nonprofits that, you know, even uh, I'm on the board of a nonprofit and, you know, yeah, or a couple of nonprofits, and we had to really rethink our live event, right? Like our big fundraiser of the year, we had to go and do virtual types of things. And, you know, we found success there as well um, in a different way, right? So um, I think some organizations, they were kind of like, oh man, I got to get online. I'm not even online. Maybe I just have a Facebook page for my nonprofit. And, you know, how do I collect money even, right? So um, just kind of like looking at the smaller, maybe nonprofit, you know, that might not have even been in the position to quickly just you know, to collect money online or to kind of convert? Like, is there anything that you can kind of recommend for them because they may still be in that situation? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the things that we saw for an ingredient of success was organizations who kind of have been investing in digitally previously, obviously, and maybe invested in technology and infrastructure that was more flexible where you could create a, an emergency landing donation page instantly, you know, in your tool. Or if you had to have a custom page for your event, you know, you had the technology and capability to do that on your website and create a form and those types of things. Like if you didn't have that tool or if you haven't been invested in, in digital, it made it very hard to do those things because now you had to procure a tool, set up the tool, learn figure it. out the tool, and then, <laughs> and then you're right, learn it and then launch it, you know? Yeah. And so uh, the, the kind of key takeaway is, you know, if you haven't, been doing some of these things like you you have to get on it now um you know hopefully for a lot of us we think this is a trend that is not going away you know maybe some events will come back and things like that but i think this is a bit of a monumental shift towards a rapid even more rapid increase in charitable giving where people are like oh yeah you know what Uh, we don't have to do all these things that we used to do there's like a a cheaper easier way to do it and so you know investing in in technology and focusing on, on digital starting today. Um, even if it's not like a huge, huge revenue source, because it's all it takes is your cause or your organization to be in the news cycle once. And if you're not set up, it's opportunity lost. You know, we had um, someone do a, a lunch and learn around Facebook fundraisers and talked about one organization that raised $20 million basically in a day. And that was like 10 times more than they'd ever raised online because of current like political events. They were in the news. And a celebrity kind of talked about them and created a fundraiser. And then before you know it, like they exploded. Mm. And so that doesn't really happen in the offline world. You know, (laughs) it's not like direct mail handouts just get like thrown about or something like that. So this need to kind of be keeping up and kind of being prepared is on the digital side is, is really, really key. So if you're not there yet, it's something worth absolutely starting to starting to do. No, I absolutely love that. I mean, to, and you know, I always encourage people to in nonprofits, you know, get online. It's not just a Facebook page. You have to like, you know, be a little more sophisticated, even though it doesn't have to be super complicated either, right? So I think online setting up, it's just it's always improving the ease of learning, right? So the learning curve becomes less and less because it becomes more user friendly for what I've seen. And I know you guys really yeah. focus on, on that online fundraising, right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's crazy. I was just talking to someone today about, you know, the barriers to entry to digital fundraising are almost nil. You know, mm-hmm. you can get a WordPress site or a Squarespace site for hundreds of dollars, you know, like cheap. You can get really good donation tools that have zero upfront cost. They maybe take a percentage, but they're really good out of the box tools. You can get MailChimp for free up to like 2,000 people, mm-hmm. you know. To, to kind of get the basic infrastructure that that you need at a decent level is 
unbelievably cheap. And so while there are some things that take a lot of time and energy and development, you know, digital isn't one to at least get started, you know, so that there's, there's not as much of an excuse to, to not kind of do that, particularly focused on email. You yeah. know, email is the main driver of, of online revenue and same thing, you know, every time that someone visits your website and leaves without kind of taking an action or maybe signing up for an email, it's, it's opportunity lost. Yeah. And so the sooner that you can find ways to like sign up for email and use different ways to capture email, it's huge. You know, email revenue was up 77% last year, according to our benchmark. Wow. And it's, it's the main driver of, of revenue. It's hugely, hugely critical. And so that's what, another simple thing is to start collecting emails wherever you can and whenever you can, because yeah. that's a critical driver of, of online fundraising. Yeah. And I think, you know, just maybe taking a step back too for people who might be like, well, what are they even talking about this online fundraising? And it is to really look at it to say there's so many different ways that you can do that, but it's basically being able to collect uh, financial transactions via online, right? So when you look at that, and like you said, there could be like lead in, it couldn't, you have sometimes just direct donate buttons, right? And some people use PayPal or whatnot and connect it and just keep it really mm -hmm. simple. Um, so you have a donate button at the top of your website, right? Those types of things. Or you have a click button on your Facebook post and it goes to a you know place where you can collect money like a PayPal or something. Um, but there's also ways, like you said, to get people on your newsletter, right? So maybe you have a newsletter that you email out every week or every other week. And it's just to provide value to the people who are interested in what your nonprofit does. And then eventually you can start asking for donations through the email, right? So um, when you have something coming on or you could do a big event online and collect money that way. So there's different ways to do it, right? Um, to collect these kind of online fundraisers. Um, but what do you think is looking at these different types of online fundraisers, right? So you have just click donate right up front. You have um, silent auctions online. You have all these different things. Like what are some of the things that really seem to work in what you guys have seen in your research? Yeah, so I mean, one like, yeah, it, it kind of does depend on your organization, but the, the type of work that we do is really focusing on the most kind of like repeatable, scalable part of digital fundraising, which is kind of using content to kind of acquire emails and then using email to kind of nurture and engage and move to a donation, which isn't to say there's not a time and a place for peer-to-peer -peer fundraisers or, you know, silent auctions that are digital and things like that. But normally those are kind of like you, you have some campaigns, you know, that you run or you have the once a year event. And so those would be ways to kind of augment and add. But if you can build a kind of a funnel to use marketing terms where, you know, you can find people to engage in content and movement, it's, it's fairly repeatable and, and scalable, especially through the type of work that we do with testing and optimization where we can figure out this type of content offer, this kind of ebook that people can download Mm -hmm. positioned well to these people kind of that we target on Facebook or something like that, who then go on to get asked in this way, you know, are likely to give. And then if we send these emails, you know, another X percent of them will give within six months. And then you have, here's how much they gave over that time period. And then here's how much it spends to acquire them. And then it's just a math equation at that point, you know, saying, can you invest X to get Y? And it's, it's not that dissimilar from direct mail where it's, you know, more scientific of sorts and kind of number crunching and things like that. So now that's like pretty involved and pretty in depth, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of data and things like that. But the, again, the biggest thing is whether you do have an event or sell an auction or you do direct response, generally speaking, the email is the core thread to all of that. Mm -hmm. Because now if you have the email, you can tell them about your silent auction. You can ask them to give, you can tell them to take a survey. You, you have a connection and a direct way to connect with them. If it's all on Facebook, if it's all on a third-party platform, if it's all, you know, on something else, you don't always have full control. You don't know who they are. And so it's really hard to kind of uh, repeat, repeat that. Maybe someone saw your Facebook post last week. They're not going to see it the next week, right? It's not a renewable resource of sorts, whereas email is, even if you're not focusing on donations. So there's so many benefits uh, to email. That's why we focus a lot of our time and energy thinking, how do you get more email signups and how do you send great emails? Right. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, even in my own business, right, it's always considered email is like going to someone's home, like inside their home, whereas like mm. social media, it's like it's you're walking down right. the streets. <laughs> So, like trying to grab some yeah. attention and there's a lot going on so it's so hard and then you know there's also this seven point kind of touch or the seven touch kind of idea be behind digital marketing can you kind of address that a little bit um just you know that 
Because some people would be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to post on social and send an email because then I'm like doing too much and getting in their space too much. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, so I think the one of the key points around all kind of communication touch points and frequency frequency to keep in mind is like you are not your, your donor. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things for us to remember as fundraisers. And so we think like, oh my goodness, you know, we posted on Facebook and we sent two emails and they also received a direct mail appeal. And it's like, you'd be lucky if they saw one of those things, you know, like just think of your own life and how many emails you get and how many direct mail appeals you get. You do not open and read every single thing. How many Facebook posts do you miss? So this is why, especially again, talking about email organizations who rely on like, a, we'll send one email a month that says 18 things or like once a quarter, like <laughs> there's a, at best 50% of people will open that thing more like 20 to 25% will, maybe you get 5% of people who actually click that thing. And if you're only doing like one touch point in one channel, like every month or every quarter, there's a good chance donors are going like a year with like hearing from you once, right? Yeah. So you think you're emailing all the time, but the donor actually isn't getting communicated to all the time. So for sure, communicating across channels is it's huge, huge, important. It's actually one of the research studies we did last year, looking at online and offline communication to see are organizations actually using things like phone, text, and mail and email together, or are they just kind of using one or just dropping off completely? Because it is really important to, to communicate across different channels. Mm -hmm. And what did you find in that research then? Because I'm really interested in <laughs> like the, you know, are yeah. we off online, are we doing it simultaneously? Are we not? Or yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the short of it is not not many organizations are doing multi-channel communication uh, for the most part. You know, in our study, we found that only three percent of organizations out of 119 <clears throat> large organizations, kind of ten million dollars and above, were sending at least one email and piece of mail to the online donor and the offline donor in a in a four month time period. And the online donor was way more likely to get um, offline communication than the other way around. So. You know, only about 17% of offline donors received at least one email. So most of the time, if you write a check, you don't get any emails uh, and maybe you get some mail and neither of our donors. So we gave two donations to the same organizations using different names, one online, one offline. Neither of them received very much phone communication. Less than 10% of organizations sent a call or text uh, in the four month time frame. So it was very kind of, uh, if you gave offline, we gave you some offline communication. If you gave online, we gave you online communication and not a lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. uh, even though all of our research says someone gives online and offline, uh, they often give three times more than single channel. Donor retention goes up 28%. You know, So it, there's, it's valuable to think about how do we use mail and email in addition to phone, right? We've seen other instances of the phone of even just a thank you call within 48 hours can increase a donor's likelihood of, of giving again. So it was a pretty kind of in one level disheartening, you know, study to just see how, how little it was kind of being done. But then the flip side is tons of opportunity, you know, a lot of opportunity um, and the tools we have to automate voicemails, automate postcards, you know, these things that sound like, oh my gosh, that I have so much to do. It's like, if you spend a little time on the front end, you can actually have personalized postcards that go out automatically and preloaded voicemails that you know, look like a real phone call and just say thanks and it takes no time once it's set up, you wow. know, so it's a different way of thinking about how we communicate and use the, the tools at our disposal to have a per more personal connection with donors. That's what we're trying to do anyways. Right. No, I love that. And I love that. And did I hear you right? You said 28% um, more likely to return to donate, donate, donating. Um, so your don donors are at 28%, sorry, retention rate. If you cross and do both, if you do on and offline. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah, correct. If, That's awesome. Yeah. And what else is interesting is offline only donors, people that only write you checks, what we've seen in our own data, if they just receive email, mm -hmm. uh, they're like 84% uh, more generous, basically. And they're also more likely to be retained, even though if they never, ever, ever give online. And what's so cool about that stat is to show just if someone, um, where people interact is and where they transact. So yeah. if you look at your giving report and you'd be like, oh, you know, they, they only write checks. Well, maybe we shouldn't email them. No, all they did was tell you, I prefer to give you a check. They haven't told you anything about where they like to get news and updates. And yeah. even beyond that, we know that, again, to your point, the multi-channel touches make a big deal. 
yeah. make a big uh, impact. Just seeing Facebook ads, we've seen a 200% increase in direct mail. You know, these channels work together. This idea that they're single channels is just, it's wrong. That's not how we exist as humans. And so to just kind of tailor our communication strategies based on that isn't, isn't exactly the best approach either. That's really, really cool. And I love that too. Um, you know, I remember even last year, right, where some of our, uh, one of the nonprofits I'm on the board of and our sponsors, you know, they gave, they gave checks and then we wanted to do baskets of thanks and make little cookies for them and like, you know, kind of customize these things, but then also give a call and also include them on our email list. And it's like, those are kind of examples of multi-touch points, right? To And when yeah. I call people, I, I, I'm old school, okay? I like calling people. <laughs> I, yeah. I prefer that over texting a lot because you can get so much done. And if we call people, I always know when I call sponsors to say, thank you. Hey, are you interested in even you know rejoining this year? They always say, thank yeah. you so much for calling me. Oh, yeah. never fails. Like they yeah. you know, are thanking the person who's asking for money. For, they're thanking them for calling them. Like, I right. think it's such a beautiful thing. <laughs> you know? So Yeah. I mean, especially if you acquire phone numbers the right way, if it's like an yeah. optional field, either on a direct mail appeal or online, like people are intentionally giving you their phone number yeah. and with implicit kind of saying, yeah, it's okay if you call me. If they don't want you, then they're not going to give you the phone number. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I just this, this kind of like quick thank you idea, whether it's like with volunteers or using a tool like Fly Broadcast to kind of automate it is, mm-hmm. is kind of a no brainer for phone numbers that, that you have and even starting to experiment with text messages and things like that. It's a little less personal if it's text, whereas if you actually hear you know, another human's voice, there's something powerful in that. Mm-hmm. But again, it's just kind of like a, a no brainer strategy of sorts of thinking. How do we just thank, honor and welcome donors a little bit better immediately after their donation, you know? I love that. And even in this, in this, you know, the next generations, you know, as the millennials move up, um, you know, Gen Z, it is, they are a very much text, you know, focused kind of audience, right? So calls for them, is kind of surprising. It's almost like someone knocks at the door, these days, right? Like right. it's actually kind of welcoming in a, in a sense, because it's different. It's, it's, you know, there's a uniqueness to it. So, yeah. It, it's, yeah. When you look at like direct mail figures, you, you often see that like kind of Gen Z and and uh, Gen uh, Y to a degree, like actually have fairly high response rates sometimes for direct mail because they don't get nearly as much. So when they get it, it's like, oh, what is what is this? Now that may fade as, as they get older, but it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Like a real human called me, he's like, wow, that, that really stands out, you know? So it's, um, yeah, those touch points are really, really powerful. I love that. So these are some of the things too that Next After Institute then does. You do research when I love hearing about this and we're going to touch on one more thing as well. The donation page friction that you looked at, like we were going to talk about that. But before we get into that, um, I wanted just to know a little bit more about what Next, Next After does because you did mention you do help out with some of these automations. You help out, you know, you have different online courses, you have a membership, you have, do consulting. So can you kind of explain uh, what you guys do in a nutshell? Yeah. So the overall mission is to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as we can. And so the core business that that we do that through is through consulting. So we do digital first, digital only consulting with typically large organizations. And that's kind of how we, we make our money. That's how we figure out different strategies that are working or not. And we spend a lot of time focusing on experimentation and testing. So running real kind of scientific tests to figure out what, what makes and helps donors respond? Why do they sign up for things? What emails do they open? So we do that through rigorous testing. So we have over 2,500 experiments now that we've ran with real nonprofits across the US and Canada to try to figure out what subject lines work, what email formats, how do we ask, what do donation pages look like, to try to figure out what works. But because we can only really work with, you know, we have 35 clients now, maybe we have 50 a year from now, like it's a tiny, tiny, tiny number in the grand scheme of even just U.S. nonprofits, let alone Canada and the world. So that's kind of why we created the Next After Institute to kind of say, well, how can we take all these different things that we're learning through all these experimentation and tests and make it more accessible for any organization in the world to kind of take advantage of this research and knowledge? And so that's why we create, you know, webinars and eBooks and uh, training courses and things like that to try to say, you know, there's a lot of people saying this is what you should do in fundraising without a lot of data or evidence to prove it. It's just, this is what I like. This is what I think. This is what Charity Water does. And we're trying to say there's got to be a better way. So let's use some some data and evidence 
for experimentation testing and then those types of studies like multi-channel where we become a donor and say, here was our experience as a donor. Here's what nonprofits are not doing. That's an opportunity and that's where we try to focus our time. So that's kind of like what the, what the company does in a nutshell. And I love that you guys actually have become donors to figure out what nonprofits are doing. And you have a lot of research on your website, actually, to showcase that. So if people are interested, they can definitely jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166, and we'll have the link to Next After Institute and some of the research that you do. Because that's that's such a cool way to look at it and to say, we're going to sign up. We're going to see you know what's happening here, what subject lines you guys are using for emails, like what converts, what do we want to open up even, right? Um, and then really look at that data on, on how many emails we got from you, et cetera, um, to really see what's happening in the world. What's the real world doing right now? And how is how are, how is the rest of the world responding to it? So I think that's cool, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's cool. <laughs> that's why that's why I work there. You know, that that's what I do. I mean, I, I've spent my whole career in the space. I work for small nonprofit, large nonprofit, consulting and technology. And it's it's interesting as all that time is kind of like I still don't actually really know what works or why things work. You just kinda some things do, some things don't. And I think as a sector, I think we've we've lacked some of that more rigor around it, you know, trying to get at the the why behind things. Cause if you don't know why something works, it's hard to replicate. So we end up kind of like, well, we'll just do the same thing we did last year and hopefully it, it does just as good. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of get by on the generosity of humans often and kind of, you know, um, unintentional competence and things like that. But, you know, when you look at charitable giving as disposable, as a percentage of disposable income, it's been 2% for 40 years. Like we're in the U.S. People today are no more generous with their disposable income than they were in the 70s. So for all of our, you know, growth as a sector and professionalization and you know, like we're, we're not moving the needle at all. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is because we haven't spent enough time really focused on things like data and testing to figure out what is actually working and how do we know so that we can improve and replicate. So that, that's a big thing that, I mean, that's why we do all the time and, and money and attention on research. No, I think that's so smart. And I think you're right. I mean, looking at it to say a lot of private organizations, governments, they may spend a lot of time trying to figure these types of things out. Maybe not government so much, but lots of private sector, right? <laughs> um, but and then you look back and you say, okay, well, what about nonprofits? And nonprofits are just kind of like, you know, it does that even exist for us? Do we even, you know, have the right to ask those types of questions? It's like, yes, you do. And right. you know what it means you know, because you are actually a business, right, as well. So to really, yeah. I, I love that you guys are doing that and you offer those types of services. Um, and I know we were kind of talking to say, like, I think in the green room before, we were looking at large nonprofits, right? Even them, they're like, you look at all the links on their pages. And a lot of times you were saying, oh my gosh, even for huge, large nonprofits, a lot of their links are busted. So they're going to 404 error pages and those types of things, <laughs> right? So, um, and we don't, we don't really, you know, experience that. If it's your nonprofit, you're not clicking all your buttons all the time, right? You're right. not clicking all your click here buttons or donate buttons. You just kind of set them up and think they're, they're running. And then you're wondering, why am I not getting donors? Why are they not coming in? You know, why are not, am I not getting people signed up for the email list? And it might be something as simple as it doesn't go anywhere when you click on it. It's a broken yeah. page. Like, and I know we're going to talk about that. That kind of like leads us into the donation friction page. And so you guys did some work on that. So you want to explain that real quick? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in all these research studies, we actually make donations ourselves. And so, you know, we've, we've made over 1,200 donations in the last like two and a half years to organizations in nine countries to try to figure out what's the online giving experience like. We answer 38 questions when we do that, you know, all the way from what's the offer? Is it one time or monthly? What's the suggested gift rate? All those types of things. But in the kind of online giving equation, there's really like value factors and then there's cost factor. And so value factors are things like, do I know my donation will make a difference? Is it connected to kind of my deeper seated motivation and values? Are there any incentives, you know, matching gifts or possibly premiums and swag or things like that? These are things that make me more likely to give. And then there's cost factors. There's obviously things like, is this a trustworthy organization? Are they going to, what are they going to use my information for? You know, these kind of fear things or anxiety. And then there's what we call friction. And this is like the actual giving process itself. You know, you have to click buttons. You have to put in personal information. You have to choose a donation amount. You know, these are, these are friction things, things that slow or actually stop a donor from actually making a gift. And so we spend a lot of time looking at 
donation page friction on all of our different studies. And it's often one of the easiest ways to improve online giving is just reduce and remove the friction elements. And so we took that a little step further right now where we actually built a tool with uh, Fundraise Up, which is a, a really good donation tool to create a, a free tool for people to, to make a donation to themselves. The one, make sure it's working. We've seen anywhere from 10 to 20% of the time, you can't even complete a donation. And again, just make sure it's working. So you go make a donation to yourself. We kind of walk you through 20 different questions that we often answer, answer in our research, you know, how long does the page load? Uh, was there any uh, messaging? How many required form fields were there? You know, those types of things. And then it'll benchmark you to another, I think it's over 500 different organizations now that have taken this uh, quiz um, to see how do you compare, you know, um, your organization compared to the benchmark. And then each one has a, a reason of saying, here's why this is important and what you should do about it in terms of removing this thing. So when we look at um, donation page friction, there's things like field number friction. How many field numbers do you have that are required? We talked about phone number earlier. If you require a phone number for a donation, you're, you're probably losing up to 50% of donors who just go, I don't want to give you my phone number and you are mandating it from me. I will not give, right? That's an example of field number friction. Field layout are using horizontal space so the page looks easier. Form error friction, if you like miss a field, does it tell you about an error? Or do you have to go all the way down? click submit, and then it's like, just kidding, you missed something, and you got to refresh the page, you know, it's form error friction. Confusion friction, you're on a page, and it's like, donate now, sign up for newsletter, some pop-up about some event comes up, and you're like, what do I do? You know, that's confusing to donors. They're there to donate, and any other thing is distracting or taking away. Decision friction, there's actually a lot of decisions people need to make while giving, you know, how much to give, how frequently do I give, what information do I provide, which fund should I give to, which child should I sponsor. And so if we ask too many decisions of our donors, they're just going to shut down. So it's called decision friction. How do we limit that? Steps friction. Anytime you have more than two steps in a, in a giving experience, you run the risk of losing them. You know, so is it like add to cart, next step, next step, next step, next step, next step. Now you're done. That's not great. You know, you're probably going to lose donors. And then device friction, you know, if you're on a mobile or a tablet, what is that experience like? So uh, last year in 2020, 28% of all online giving came in on a mobile device, uh, which is up from like 17% just five years ago. So more and more and more people are making donations on a mobile device. And so that's one, like not pinching and zooming, which is kind of the basics nowadays. But if you have these other forms of friction, mm -hmm. it's compounded on a mobile device. If you've done anything on a mobile device, shopping or reading or anything, Everything's condensed. Everything's quicker. So if you have three steps on a mobile, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is like a million steps, yeah. you know, and if you have 12 form fields, it feels like a million, you know, everything gets compounded on a mobile device. And so uh, all those kind of friction factors combined. So that's what we spent a lot of time kind of researching. And uh, we think it's one of the easiest ways to improve. And it's why we built that tool to help uh, organizations analyze their own giving experience and try to go back through and then kind of reduce or remove those elements. That is amazing. And that's available then as well for people to tap into for them to utilize. It is. Yeah, it's a, it's a free tool, donationpagefriction.com. Uh, again, this is where partnership with Fundraise Up is great because they, they partnered with us to say, hey, we, we think this is a really cool tool. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of built it in conjunction with them, use some of their data on like mobile, mobile wallet payments and mm -hmm. what they see around certain steps and page load times and things like that. So they contributed a lot of uh, data that they've collected on their own giving experience. But yeah, free tool for anyone to get um, get a quick analysis. And if you don't control your donation page, it's good fodder to go to your, you know, development person or your boss or your board and just say like, look, we scored an eight out of 25 here. Uh, we're probably losing donors every single day. So yeah. to maybe justify, you know, finding a better tool or making some changes, that's the other thing we're hoping to empower people to do. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I like that it's compared to the market of people who have done it. So it's not just some arbitrary, like, this is your scale, like it's putting so you can see where you rate with your peers, right, with other nonprofits who have taken this. So how does that kind of help people? Um, does it give them more something to kind of aim toward or they can see, you know what I mean? Like, how does that work? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the one of the challenges of a benchmark, especially if, if organizations aren't doing a great job, is that people will settle for just being okay. Right. Like if everyone sucks and you're just better than sucky, then you might be complacent. So that's the danger of, of a benchmark is it's not supposed to say, oh, we're good. We're, we're better than average. So we don't need to do anything. 
Um, but what it should help you understand is like, say for field number friction, right? Mm -hmm. If you go like, I'm in this debate with my board, whether we should require Mr. and Mrs. and phone number or something like that. You know, you can take this and A, you'll see our research that says, if you require it, you are losing donors. That's what our, our experiments say. That's mm -hmm. one data point. And two, you can find that like actually only 20% of organizations in this study require those form fields. So A, you're losing donors and B, very few other organizations are doing it. So hopefully that makes it easier for you to say, why are we doing this? Let's not do this, you know? Um, so that, that's why we both, we don't just do benchmarks because just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean that it's good. You right. know, 90% of organizations could be doing something bad. So we try to offset that with the research that fundraise up. And we have to also say, this is good or bad. And here's what you should do about it. So it's not just the benchmark. It's the benchmark in context of other research as far as what's good and bad. And I think that's important to have both. Yeah. Uh, so that it, it's actionable. Right. No, I think that's really good. And just, you know, you mentioned a lot of different things. So I really encourage people out there. Definitely go to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166. And we'll get the link there as well. Um, because, you know, that's a great thing you can do, right? You can just take a few minutes of your time, go through it, really analyze your own nonprofit and really then see, okay, well, not just that, okay, maybe we're not doing things right, but how can we do things better? So it can show you that mm -hmm. said. Um, and give you that kind of report. Um, but what would you say are the main things that you see as far as, um, you know, first name, email, that's pretty much it when collecting data, like, you know, and of course they're gonna have to have credit card information and that sort of thing, but just, you know, it's kind of the best process overall that you guys have seen. Yeah, so, I mean, we call it uh, only collect essential information. So, like, you don't need to know someone's title, Mr. Mrs. You don't need their phone number. Or you don't need to know how they heard about you. The, the, those bits of information don't help you process the gift. Yeah. You need their, their name, their credit card information. You don't always have to have their billing. Some tools don't even need the billing. But generally speaking, you need their billing. Uh, and then you need their email. So you can send them the automated receipt. So, basically, that's it. And the strategy is if there's other bits of information that you would like, find it another way to collect it, even on the post donation page. So, you know, after the gift, say, thank you so much. Um, here's what your gift will do. Tax receipt is on its way. Check your inbox. Hey, while you're here, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You know, one, how did you hear about us today? Um, you know, two, do you mind providing your phone number so we can say thanks and, you know, provide a text update along the way? You know, like after the giving is done, now you have an opportunity to maybe collect other information, survey, whatever. But organizations often kind of stuff all the stuff that they want. So one, like that's what you want, but how does it add value to my experience as a donor? And yeah. two, they throw it in the middle of a financial transaction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you go through the Amazon checkout cart and then at the end they're, they're asking about all other kind of private information, right? It's mm -hmm. optimized to get you to purchase. And after you purchase, what do you see? All these other suggested things that you can buy, you know, now there's all this other stuff that they're throwing at you, but they throw it at you afterwards, not during the experience. So that's that's probably the biggest one is organizations are trying to collect way too much information and during the giving experience and especially requiring information. That's that's where the rubber really hits the road. It's one thing to kind of have a phone number field. Yeah. If it's optional. We've seen no difference. If you require it, it means I cannot give to you unless I give you this information. That's where things get really dicey. So we say like, never require anything outside of the essential and only have like a few other optional fields, if any, because that people are very obviously sensitive about their information. And so if you mandate it, then it gets like, this is a little heavy handed. What are you going to do with my information? You know, things right. like that. So that's, that's often the biggest one is, is like, what are you requiring for information and do you really need it at that moment? Okay, perfect. And that, that is so good. I mean, all of this information Super helpful. I know it's going to help so many people that are listening or watching um, to really understand how to do this. Like maybe it's just some things to be like, oh my gosh, we were doing that thing and that could have been holding us back from donors. So um, so as we move forward then, you know, as we're wrapping this interview up then today, um, I just want to also just ask, you know, what's in store for 2021 and beyond? Like we know we kind of, you know, went through, we kind of looked back at 2020 and now that things are settling out, um, you know, what are we going to see from online giving? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope we see we see more of the same and just hopefully it's not for the same reasons where it's kind of like the only option is to force people to go online. I think hopefully people see, you know, the value of some of the things that they did in 2020 and can improve upon it. 
Uh, consumer behavior, I think, hopefully is nudged, you know, more that way to, to think. So, uh, you know, hopefully we do a podcast 199 or whatever it is, you know, a year from now, we can talk about the same, you know, type of trends. And hopefully we as a, a sector in a space get better at these types of things in terms of email communication and personalization and, you know, marketing automation and friction reduction. And I think those things come with more focus and time, you know, for a lot of organizations, digital, small percentage of revenue is kind of new and scary. And so I, I don't think this is something that will just like incrementally grow. I think there is a bit of a, a tipping point where consumer behavior and our knowledge and tools kind of combine and, and online giving really starts to grow incredibly, you know, rapidly. So we're not, we're not there, but I, I hope we're kind of, you know, inching our way there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brady. And once again, where can people find Next After Institute? Yeah, I mean, if you go to nextafter.com, that's, that's great. You'll find out more about the Institute and research and how we work with clients and our conference and all kinds of stuff. Uh, so I just, I'd say uh, go to nextafter.com. That's the best place. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that a lot of people are going to find this very useful and helpful. And I know I learned a lot today and I was taking notes. <laughs> I got the notes over here. I got to do that donation friction page. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for, again for coming on and we'll see you on nextafter.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Brady Josephson. Just as a reminder, please feel free to grab your free coupon code to get a free course at Next After Institute. Just jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166 for all the details. Once again, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166. You can also find other tools there, such as our free grants formula, a mini training on how to write grants. And just as a reminder, if you love this podcast, and especially this episode, please do leave a review on iTunes and take a snapshot of it and send it over to me via email. You will then be entered to win a copy of the Beginner's Guide to Grant Writing, number one best-selling book on Amazon. Every month, I give away a free paperback or ebook, your choice, um, to a lucky winner who leaves a review. For all of the information, go to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash podcast dash review. I'll also have the link on our episode today, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 166. All right, guys, I'll see you next week.